0: Hey friends, today I'm very thrilled to share some exciting news about my latest book, Positional Authority Ain't Leadership, Behavioral Science for Navigating Bullshit, Optimizing Performance, and Avoiding Ask Clownery. It's just been released and it's already soared to number one bestseller status across six categories on Amazon. It's a book that dives into how behavior analysis can revolutionize leadership and it's packed with insights and strategies for navigating complex organizational dynamics. But I know what you're thinking. There are countless leadership books out there, right? What makes this one stand out? Well, it's not just about theories and abstract concepts. Positional Authority Ain't Leadership is about actionable, science-based tactics that address real-world challenges. So if you're looking for a guide that combines behavior analysis and organizational behavior management with practical, down-to-earth advice, Positional Authority Ain't Leadership is the book for you. Welcome to the Thoughts and Rants of a Behavior Scientist Show hosted by Wall Street Journal and USA Today, best-selling author, Dr. Pauly. Hey folks, Dr. Pauly here, and thanks for joining me again on my thoughts and rants of a behavior scientist, where I take a look at common issues or phenomena in our personal and professional lives, give you my thoughts, sometimes rant about it, and hopefully provide you with a practical solution or two. Today, I want to talk to you about public education. Boy, am I passionate about this. Specifically, the shame of American education, the most important investigation that you've probably never heard of. A couple of years ago, 150 colleges were prepared to begin using what they called the SAT disadvantage score. According to the Wall Street Journal. This new metric was designed to capture students' socioeconomic status and give context to test scores to better even the playing field. The metric was to be based on a number of environmental factors that influence a student's home and school life, including neighborhood crime rates, housing values and vacancies, the community's average educational attainment, and poverty levels. For some, this was potentially a great thing. I remember when I first heard it, I thought so, but then I had to think differently about it. If you are born in an economically disadvantaged area through no fault of your own, you are often deprived of the same educational opportunities the more affluent receive. Magnified by historic oppression and discrimination, poverty eventually transfers from the setting to the mindset as people become hopeless. Believe me, I've worked in these schools for decades and at one point I was educated in them a fact that I believe is reflected in my terrible ACT and SAT scores that almost derailed me from pursuing higher education. While some people might say, well, you turned out okay, my family was not a product of generational poverty. My mom had me at 15 years old and soon found herself single and struggling. This is why we temporarily ended up on welfare, living in a relatively poor neighborhood, and I ended up going to a poor school but we still had strong support systems from people who had means. A safety net, if you will, that allowed us to take chances and move forward. It's tough for everybody in these schools, students, teachers, and leaders. Thankfully, the whole concept was abandoned for a number of reasons. From my perspective, while trying to adjust the playing field through a disadvantaged score might be a move in the right direction for a few, for most, it was just setting them up for failure as they would have been dropped into an academic environment they were unprepared to deal with. It's like me dropping one of my novice fighters into the ring with a professional. They are going to take a beating and walk away thinking they don't have what it takes to be successful. The focus of improving education shouldn't be on the symptom, but on the root causes. In a study by the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center, investigators found students from high-poverty schools are much less likely to enroll in college immediately following high school or complete a degree within six years of high school graduation. Just listen to these college graduation rates illustrating that students who attended high-poverty schools were almost three times less likely to graduate. So those that came from high-poverty schools only 18% graduated from college, low poverty, 52%, low income, only 24%, higher income, 45%, high minority, only 28%, low minority, 48%. The relationship between education, income, and having the means to support a family is strong. There is no doubt about it. Just check this data out. Based on a 2015 article by Bashara et al. titled "The Demographics of Wealth: How Age, Education, and Race Separate Thrivers from Strugglers in Today's Economy," so this is about financial, family financial outcomes based on education. If your education is no high school diploma, you earn a median income of about $22,320. If you earn a high school diploma, you earn about $41,190. Listen to this. If you have a two or four-year degree, the family median income goes up to about $76,293. And if you have an advanced degree, well, that jumps all the way up to $116,265. And while it's not just about the money, to a certain point, it is as increased income leads to healthier, happier, and longer lives. Check out this data that reflects the correlation between illness, income, and life expectancy. 8.1% of those who earn less than $35,000 are likely to get coronary heart disease as compared to 4.9% of those who earn more than $100,000. Stroke, 3.9% for $35,000 or less, compared to 1.6% of $100,000 or more. Emphysema, 3.2% for those with less than $35,000, compared to 0.8% for those who make more than $100,000. And it goes on and on. And when it comes to life expectancy, there's almost a 10 year difference in it when comparing the lowest with the highest earners. Every metric is drastically and negatively impacted based on low income. This shouldn't be a surprise to anybody as money gives people access to quality medical, sustenance, and education. Oh, and then let's not forget the fact that those who come from more affluent homes are more educated and far less likely to be incarcerated. You know, a 2018 study titled Estimating the Economic Cost of Childhood Poverty in the United States found that the annual aggregate cost of U.S. child poverty is over $1 trillion. And a 2016 study titled The Economic Burden of Incarceration in the U.S. assigned monetary values to include costs to incarcerated persons, families, children, and communities to be approximately. trillion dollars that's trillion dollar folks the fact is if we want to improve health and quality of life reduce poverty decrease incarceration and keep our economy strong all the while maintaining america's core values of independence and equality as a nation we must do a better job educating and preparing our children Though the US government spends over $650 billion a year on K-12 schools, too many are still not yielding the desired results for the students who need it the most. We need to do better, and we can. While politicians are busy arguing the merits of charter schools as a potential solution, they aren't addressing the root cause, and there is a root cause. So what is it, and what can be done? Beyond certain policies, there are critical elements in education that need to be addressed. Beginning with teacher and leader prep programs, moving right down to curriculum, instruction, and assessment. For example, many teacher and leadership prep programs are rooted primarily in lecture with very little rehearsal and feedback and the critical skills necessary to effectively lead and teach. It's like me only telling my fighter how to fight and perhaps explaining the merits of certain techniques. And then dropping them in the ringer cage and expecting they will be successful. They're going to take a beating and leave. And that's exactly what's happening in education. Now, as we speak about teacher and leadership preparation, I want to switch gears just a little bit to talk to you about the most important investigation in education that you've probably never heard of. And in a sense, this is very good news as the technology for improving academic outcomes and the resulting quality of life exists. We can help leaders accelerate teacher performance, and we can help our teachers accelerate student performance through better instructional methods. You know, more than 40 years ago, through the largest educational experiment ever conducted over a 10-year period, the U.S. government... Was able to determine the most effective methods for educating disadvantaged children. The fact that most have never heard of this study should make both parents and educators want to find out more, and policymakers and the federal government hang their head in shame. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson declared war on poverty and funded compensatory education programs, or those programs designed to compensate for deficiencies in a person's learning experiences. One of these programs was Head Start, a program I was personally enrolled in as a young child. While the program showed promise, any gains made were lost once the children entered primary grades. In efforts to extend the positive effects of the program, Johnson requested Congress create a program to quote-unquote follow through on Head Start resulting in the most costly research in education ever financed by the federal government. This investigation, again, one that you've probably never heard of, is called Project Follow-Through. Google it yourself and just click on images to see a bar graph of the data. The results indicate that what is called direct instruction model, and to a lesser degree, what was called behavior analysis at the time, were by far superior to the other instructional methods in areas related to basic skills, problem solving, and self-esteem. Now, I want to pause here and make a quick note about terminology. When folks hear the term direct instruction, they immediately think, well, that's just regular teaching. But it is in fact a highly sequenced, scripted, and scaffolded approach to teaching rooted in behavior analytic principles. And while the other successful methodology was called behavior analysis, it was poorly termed, in my opinion, as behavior analysis encompasses an entire science, not the token economy that was researched. At any rate, if you are like me and this is the first time you've seen this data, your jaw likely dropped. It almost seems criminal to think we have the ability to drastically improve educational outcomes, Yet this research has been almost completely ignored by legislators and is only used across a handful of schools. So if this instructional approach exists and it's not being used everywhere there are disadvantaged children, then the question becomes why? Really, my initial thought is WTF. In my field, that stands for what's the function. Well, outside the field, You know what that means. Let's just say this makes me sick. If you want to know the details why, I'd highly advise you pick up a copy of the small book titled Project Follow-Through, A Case Study of Contingencies Influencing Instructional Practices of the Educational Establishment, published by the Cambridge Center for Behavioral Studies. Here's a thumbnail sketch of some of what is highlighted and what I personally found to be the most compelling factors many of which interlock. First, let's talk about policymakers. Policymakers typically focus and have expertise in the distribution of funds and likely do not have expertise in the areas of instructional study. Besides, the behavior of policymakers is controlled by support from both the academic community and public opinion. So if the academic community doesn't wish to change and the public has no opinion because they are unaware, Well, there you go. What about colleges of education? If we're going to change the performance of our school leaders and teachers, we must change what and how they're being taught. As I mentioned, with far too much lecture and far too little repetition and feedback and critical behaviors linked to effective instruction and leadership, these good folks are learning on the job and at the expense of the students and taxpayers. Although the primary responsibility of professors in these programs is teacher and leader training, their tenure is typically tied to publication and grant writing. How is it that teachers and leaders are measured on student achievement in K 12, but not in higher education? Why isn't that occurring with the professors? There is clearly a disconnect. This is not the fault of the professors. This is the system they work within. But while much of higher education is banking, our children and educators are suffering. How about the publishers? While the general purpose of the educational establishment is to improve knowledge, skills, and outcomes for students in preparation for life, the purpose of publishers is the almighty dollar. As a result, their efforts are guided by what's popular, not what's empirical. Don't judge a book by its cover has never been more appropriate here. But unfortunately, this is exactly what happens. When curriculum physically looks pleasing, the description enticing, and the rep or salesperson compelling, districts and schools dive in, too often, despite the absence of empirical evidence. Let's take a look at another issue, school districts are caught up in this mess, as well as Funding is frequently allocated to districts for implementing other innovations. In the absence of financial support, there's often little incentive for schools and districts to adopt an innovation, in this case, direct instruction and other approaches rooted in behavior analytic principles. How about coaching? You know, not all higher ed is bad. In fact, there are many great programs out there. But even when teachers and leaders receive solid training... It's imperative they receive monitoring and feedback through coaching to ensure the transfers of skills learned into the school and classroom. For those of you who don't know, there is actually a science that can be applied to improving the performance of individuals, groups, schools, and school districts. It's a little known science called Organizational Behavior Management, or OBM, for short, and it's rooted in the science of human behavior, or behavior analysis. Finally the public in general philosophical underpinnings of the establishment. And this is easy. The public, not surprisingly, is simply unaware these effective teaching methods exist or that any of the above variables I've discussed are linked to the issues. But even those who are aware think differently about how learning occurs despite the overwhelming evidence of best practice. In short, many educational institutes a cognitive approach as they believe that learning occurs from the inside out where the behavioral approaches address learning from the outside in through the arrangement of environmental contingencies but regardless of the philosophy you might stand by data should rule the day and it's not so here are some parting words the success or failure of our system of public education is clearly important to the well being of every person in our nation. There are other instructional methods like precision teaching that have been well researched and combined with direct instruction to accelerate student achievement. Check out the Great Falls Project to find more about the research behind precision teaching, or Google existing schools and programs like Morningside Academy in Seattle under Dr. Kent Johnson, or Mike Maloney's The Maloney Method in Canada, or The Comprehensive Applied behavior Analysis Systems, or KABAs. these programs tout academic achievement at a rate of two to seven times that of students who receive traditional instruction. While I'm happy the technology exists, it's truly shameful it is not being applied everywhere. In fact, in 1984, B.F. Skinner wrote an article titled The Shame of American Education, highlighting the inconsistencies in education, and voicing the truth that we have the technology to drastically improve educational and related outcomes. Now, and that was then. I suggest you check it out. It's available free on the internet. Just Google it. I'll leave you with this quote by Skinner. Young people are by far the most important natural resource of a nation, and the development of that resource is assigned to education. Each of us is born needing to learn what others have learned before us, and much of it needs to be taught. We would all be better off if education played a far more important part in transmitting our culture. Not only would that make for a stronger America, but we might also look forward to the day when the same issues could be discussed about the world as a whole. When, for example, all peoples produce the goods they consume And behave well towards each other Not because they are forced to do so But because they have been taught something of the ultimate advantages Of a rich and peaceful world So be well my friends Fight for what you believe in And make sure you continue to behave in ways that align with your values Despite what struggles you might be going through And if you value education and your children Take a look at some of the research I talked about And consider what I'm saying Take care. Be well, and thank you for tuning in to the Thoughts and Rants of a Behavior Scientist Show.